Uh, well, this morning, if you're a guest, uh, you're in for a special treat. Uh, we're near the tail end of a series and a special emphasis that we do every summer called Super Summer. We well, this year went back to one service just for these five weeks. And over a five week period, uh, we bring in four guest speakers and then I get to preach in the middle. Usually is how that works. And so, uh, so it's just been a real treat and real fun for our church. Just something a little different uh, in the summer. Well, this morning we have with us uh, Pastor Bob Russell. So let me just tell you a little a bit of Bob's story. In 1966, at just 22 years of age, uh, Bob became the pastor at Southeast Christian Church. And that small congregation outside of Louisville was 120 members. And when he retired in 2006, uh, Southeast Christian was averaging 18,000 people on the weekends. That was not, you heard me correctly, 18,000 people on the weekends. And now through Bob Russell Ministries, Bob continues to preach at churches and conferences throughout the United States and mentor other pastors and author Bible study videos uh, for use in small groups. Uh, Bob's written over one dozen books. Uh, Southeast Christian Church was a big part of Not a Fan, the series that we walked through here and the Christmas experience, and then one we'll be working through this fall. And so it is an incredible, incredible privilege uh, to have with us this morning. And so Liberty Heights Church, would you make welcome, a warm welcome this morning to Pastor Bob Russell. Well, good morning. It's good to be here today, and I've been reading about this church. I got a chance to meet with Brad and hear your story and to see you sending out these people into mission work. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. But I know that I begin with a couple strikes against me. First of all, I'm from Kentucky, and Kentucky has a reputation of being a backward state. I don't know why that is, but we have that reputation. A friend emailed me a while back and said, you know, I knew that Kentucky was a backward state, but I didn't know how backward until I went to the zoo in Kentucky. said, you go to the zoo in other states, they've got the name of the animal in English, and then in parentheses, they've got the name of the animal in Latin. But you go to the zoo in Kentucky, they've got the name of the animal in English, and then in parentheses, they've got a recipe. Well, <clears throat> I want you to know that's not exactly true, but I am from Kentucky. The second strike I've got against me is, that I just turned 70 years of age not very long ago. And I know when you get to be 70, 80 years old, that people are suspicious of how alert you can remain at that age. I heard about several guys who were friends, and they discovered when they turned 50 that all of them had the same birthday. And they didn't know that. They said, we all celebrate the same birthday. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some really pretty waitresses there. So they did. Ten years later, they said, we're going to turn 60. Let's all celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some really good food there, you know. Ten years later, they turned 70 and said, let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got a wheelchair ramp down there. <clears throat> Ten years later, when they turned 80, they said, let's celebrate our birthday together. Where should we go? They said, let's go to that restaurant down by the river. We've never been there before. So even though I'm from Kentucky and even though I'm 70 years old, I, I hope that you'll listen today. I'm glad to be here. Last several months, I have been involved with a movie production company in Louisville. And we produced a movie called Acts of God. Why God Allows So Much Pain. And that movie, a full-length motion picture, has been broken down into six 
small group studies for churches. I serve as the teacher in those small group studies on the life of Joseph. And I understand your church is going to do that series this fall. I've also written a book by that same title, Acts of God, Why Does God Allow So Much Pain, that I've made available in the vestibule afterward. Uh, the cost of that is $10, which about covers our cost, but if that's a burden for you, you pick one up for free. We'll be glad to, to give you one. My friend Andy Potts, who's with me today, will be with that book. But since that has been on my mind the last several months, that's what I want to talk with you today why does God allow His people to hurt? I remember the first time I seriously asked the question. I was home as a 24-year-old preacher at our home church, my home church homecoming. And we had a great homecoming day, but that afternoon at the church picnic, our preacher, Gerald Comp, the best preacher our church had ever had, 38 years of age, drowned at the church picnic. The rest of us had been playing softball, but Gerald had been playing tag with the little kids in the old swimming hole. And I'll never forget my mother racing across the picnic grounds, calling out to my dad, Chap, the little kids said that Brother Gerald went down and he never came back up. And immediately everybody raced for the old swimming hole. The excellent swimmers dove into the 13 feet murky cold waters looking for his body. Others went uh, running through the woods calling his name hoping that he really wasn't there. But his whole family, his two teenage daughters, his wife, his dad, his brothers were all on the bank. And finally somebody said, as people were kneeling on the bank, somebody said, I found him. And they dragged the body ashore, but it was too late. All the efforts at resuscitation failed. And I remember when the emergency vehicle slowly drove away, taking his body to the mortuary. As our family walked to the car, it was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. But Gerald's 14-year-old son, Greg, wasn't there. He'd stayed home that day with the flu. So about 20 minutes later, a friend of the family and I drove up to the house to break the news to Greg that his dad had drowned. One of the hardest things I ever did in ministry. I felt so sorry for him. How do you tell a 14-year-old boy that his dad, his hero, has drowned? And as he sat there sobbing, was when I most seriously asked the question as a young minister, why would God let that happen? Why would God take the preacher who was doing such a good job at age 38 and let him drown? I didn't understand it. I didn't have the answer. But I've asked that question a lot over 40-some years of ministry after a tragic automobile accident, a still ultrasound, or a news report about grade school children being gunned down in school. A disclosure of unfaithfulness on the part of a staff member. A shocking suicide, a Down syndrome birth. You've asked that question too. It's a question of frustration. It's a question of doubt for many people. If God is all-powerful and God is all-loving, then why doesn't He intervene and protect us from so much pain? In the 16th century... Uh, 
St. Teresa of Avila, in exasperation, said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's not, no wonder you don't have very many. Now, if you have never had your faith shaken by inexplicable suffering, then you be thankful. You're rare. But you will someday. And you need to be prepared for it when it comes. There is a character in the Bible who went through a lot of pain, and yet he remained faithful to God. His name is Joseph. Joseph is one of my favorite Bible characters because there are over a dozen chapters about his life, and yet there is no flagrant flaw recorded against Joseph. He went through such prolonged pain, experienced so many unanswered questions, and yet he always seems to do the right thing. He maintained his faith. And his story, beginning in Genesis 37, provides both inspiration to us to be faithful in adversity and some instruction to us about how to respond when life gets really difficult. You think about the tragic experiences that Joseph went through the first three decades of his life. To begin with, he grew up in a dysfunctional home. Joseph's home life was a mess. His father had over 12 children by four different women. And Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons. He was his father's unashamed favorite because he was the first son of Rachel, his favorite wife. And Jacob, his dad, didn't even try to cover over his favoritism. He gave Joseph special garment to wear and special privileges in the family. And naturally, his ten half-brothers hated him. The Bible says they despised him. And then Joseph made the mistake of relating two dreams that he had that indicated one day the entire family, all the brothers were going to bow down before him and serve him. And you talk about bullying. One day those older brothers ripped that special garment off of Joseph and threw him in a pit, a cistern that was dry, and they were going to let him die. But it just so happened at that exact moment that some Ishmaelite traders came by on their way to Egypt. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible it just so happened moments seem to be coincidences whenever they're really divine providence? It just so happened that when Isaac's servant was looking for a wife for his master, that Rebekah came to the well to draw water. It just so happened that when Moses' mother put the little baby in the cattails of the Nile River, that Pharaoh's daughter came by at that exact moment. It just so happened that when Paul and Silas were in prison, that an earthquake at midnight shook the prison doors open. It just so happened that when Mary was about to give birth to her child, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world was going to be taxed, and Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem where it just so happened that the Messiah was to be born. I wonder how many times in your life you thought a meeting was a coincidence and it absolutely turned your life around because God was providentially arranging that meeting. Well, it just so happened that when the brothers put Joseph in a pit, going to leave him to die, that these Ishmaelite traders came by and offered 20 shekels of silver for Joseph to take into Egypt. And as the brothers lifted Joseph out of that cistern, they were about to lift him above his dysfunctional family. If you grew up in an imperfect family, you can go all through your life blaming everything wrong that happens to you on your family, or you can rise above it. Oprah Winfrey did, and so did Larry Bird 
the all-star basketball player and owner of the Indiana Pacers. He rose above his family. My dad did. My father was the 17th of 18 children. His mother died when he was three. His father was an alcoholic. He got passed around from older sister to older sister. But even though he grew up in an unbelieving pagan home, he met my mother at age 20. She was a Christian. My dad gave his life to Christ and never looked back. Even though he worked in a factory and scraped to get by with six kids, 10% of every paycheck went to the church. And he broke the cycle. All of us in our family are Christian. I became a preacher. I've got a brother who's a preacher. I've got two sisters married to preachers. I've got one sister who's a black sheep. She married a deacon. But you've got people in your family you're a little ashamed of. My dad rose above his background, and so did Joseph. But he didn't just have to overcome a dysfunctional family. He found himself trapped in a dead-end job. Now think about this. At age 17, Joseph is taken to Egypt. He's auctioned off as a slave. To make matters worse, he's purchased by a man named Potiphar, who is the head of Pharaoh's security guard. Now, if you're going to be bought by an owner, you're a slave, you want to be bought by a florist or a violinist, not Pharaoh's executioner. And keep in mind, Joseph at age 17 didn't know the language. He didn't know the customs. He's given the lowest job on the totem pole. And he's been sleeping on a feather bed. And now in a few days, he's sleeping on a hard rock floor. However, instead of getting bitter and complaining and going around saying, no speak of Egyptian, Joseph decides he's going to bloom where he's planted. He worked hard. He was responsible. He learned the language. He showed up on time. He did his job well. He was so gifted that Genesis 39, beginning with verse 4, says that Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to Joseph's care everything he owned. And the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, that's the kind of administrative assistant that every executive would like to have. But he's still in the dead-end job. He's still a slave. There's no raise. There's no promotion. He's just doing more work. Maybe you are in a job that you think you're overqualified for or you're not really getting compensated and you ask the way you thought you should and you ask God, why is this? The people I went to school with, I'm smarter than some of those people. I'm more gifted than some of those people who become prosperous and everything falls in line for them. But why not me? And all you can do is continue to function at that job where you've been assigned. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible God called people to dramatic service who were working at mundane jobs? I mean, Gideon was threshing wheat in a pit. Amos was picking figs in a farm. Uh, Moses was tending sheep for 40 years when God called him at 80 years of age. Peter and John were mending their nets by the sea. And uh, Matthew was working at a toll booth collecting taxes. What if Matthew had taken a personal day and not showed up on the day that Jesus came to call him? And when you have a mundane job, your assignment as a Christian 
until you see God's higher purpose is just show up on time and go to work with a good attitude. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, you work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. That's what Joseph did. If he was going to be a slave, he's going to be the best slave he could be. But next came an occasion when he was the victim of injustice. Joseph is falsely accused and punished for doing the right thing. Genesis 39, verse 6 and 7 describes it like this. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus had nothing on Potiphar's wife. I mean, she's aggressive. And this had to be an intense temptation for Joseph. He's in his mid-twenties. He's single. I've often thought if Joseph had just taken a modern psychology course, he could have rationalized disobedience to God. He could have said, you know, my father was overindulgent with me. My mother died when I was young and my brothers bullied me. And here I am in a foreign country. I'm of a a minority race. The moral values of the people in this country are atrocious. And uh, it would be to my advantage to say yes. And surely God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? No. Joseph said, I can't do this thing and spit in the face of my master. I, I, I can't treat God like that. I can't do this thing and sin against God. But the Bible says in Genesis 39, though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. But one day he went into the house to attend his duties and none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Joseph had trouble holding on to coats. Have you noticed that? You know, most of the time the Bible says we're to stand firm against temptation. Stand firm in the faith. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But we are told when faced with sexual temptations to run. Flee fornication, the Bible says. Because the flames of passion, once ignited, almost always consume the willpower and make resistance nearly impossible. That's why the Bible says, don't even think about how to gratify the evil desires of the flesh. You know what I've observed? Very few people deliberately jump into hell. They just kind of play around the edges and accidentally fall in. Well, Joseph didn't toy around the edges of temptation to get an adrenaline rush. He ran so fast that he left Potiphar's wife holding his coat. Now, you know that God has to be really pleased with Joseph's resolve. And you would anticipate God is going to immediately just bestow all kind of blessings on, on Joseph for his spiritual strength, but not so. There's an old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So when Potiphar came home that night, he found his wife just in a pitiful condition, curled up in a fetal position on the couch with Joseph's coat beside her. And she said, that Hebrew slave you brought into this house tried to attack me today. So Joseph, who had obeyed God, who had resisted temptation, who had honored his master, was immediately thrown into prison. In fact, Psalm 105, verse 18 says, they bruised Joseph's feet with shackles and his neck was put in irons. Now, this had to be disillusioning for Joseph. He did the right thing 
and the reward is brutal punishment? Where is God? You know, over the years, I've seen people punished after doing the right thing. I've seen high school girls refuse to go to bed with a star football player and they wind up staying home alone at the prom. I've seen secretaries refuse to lie for their boss and get fired. I've seen people resist the temptation to cheat on an exam and others cheat and others make medical school and they don't. You know, Tim Tebow seemed to do the right thing to me. He had a great testimony for God, and yet he wound up getting cut from the Denver Broncos and the New York Jets and the New England Patriots, and people made fun of him when he got cut, saying, where's your God now, Tebow? Maybe you ought to pray more. And these people have to ask, where is God? Where is this blessedness that is promised to those who walk in obedience? But Joseph refuses to allow a root of bitterness to grow in his soul. He bloomed where he was planted, even though he was planted in prison. And it wasn't long before he impressed the jailer. Genesis 39, beginning with verse 21, says, While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, but because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. You know, Joseph is everybody's favorite. He was his dad's favorite. He was Potiphar's favorite. Potiphar's wife's favorite. And he's the prison warden's favorite. He's going to be Pharaoh's favorite. But ultimately, he was God's favorite. But his struggles weren't over yet. There in prison, doing the best he could, he was subject to discouragement. One day, it just so happened that Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker were sent to prison. And it just so happened they were in the ward that Joseph was overseeing. And it just so happened they both had strange dreams. And Joseph had a special gift from God to interpret dreams. He interpreted the baker's dream by saying, bad news for you, you're going to be held accountable here for evidently the poisoning of Pharaoh and your head's going to be lifted off in three days. But he said to the cupbearer, good news for you. In three days, you're going to be restored to your previous position and you're going to be back serving Pharaoh in three days. And the cupbearer was so elated, he said, can I do anything for you? And Joseph said, yes, when you're back in good graces with Pharaoh, would you speak a good word on my behalf? I shouldn't be in prison. I didn't do anything wrong. Would you get me out of here? And I'm sure the cupbearer said, I will do everything I can. And that night, Joseph must have been thinking, wow, this is too much of a coincidence. The cupbearer from Pharaoh, I interpret his dream. He's going to be back in good graces. I think God's about to to release me. But the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. I heard the other day a guy say, you know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> and that was a cupbearer, just a narcissist, just thought about himself and indulgence. And Genesis 41, chapter, chapter 41, verse 1 says, when two full years had passed, Two years is a long time to be in prison, especially when it's packed on to ten years of being a slave. Where is God in all this? Why doesn't he reward obedience with freedom and prosperity? That's discouraging. Have some of you ever been taken for granted? Or you've served people and they neglect you? I've seen people in our church adopt children from a foreign country 
and those children would have just been on the street in third world countries and these parents give these kids everything and then the kids sometimes 17, 18 years of age reject their parents' faith and just go spiritually AWOL. I've seen people work for a company dedicated all their lives and this uh, then a few years before retirement they, the company downsizes and they have no job, no retirement. I've seen women work to put their husbands through med school sacrifice for them and within a few years of him becoming a doctor he leaves her for a trophy wife like joseph when these things happen we all ask where is god when it hurts where's this promise that all things work together for good to those who love god gerald comp loved god tim tebow loved god joseph loved god didn't seem to be working out for them now i am not a five-point calvinist who believes that god predestines everything that happens to you and that God is responsible for all the hurt that's in the world. We are not puppets on a string. We have free will. Some of my hyper-Calvinist friends get upset with me when I say that, but I say, why are you getting upset? God must be making me say that according to your belief. (laughs) We live in a fallen world. Nature is groaning and people are evil and germs are rampant. I get that. So God is not responsible for all the pain in the world any more than a father who takes the training wheels off his child's bicycle is responsible for the spills of the tears that may follow. But God is all-powerful. And God does sometimes intervene and answer prayer. I've seen it happen dramatically. And Jesus did heal people of terminal disease like the lepers. Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead, so He can do it. Why doesn't He do it for all people who are devout? In the movie, We Made Acts of God, there is a Christian doctor who gets so frustrated that some people around him are terminally ill or die. He gets drunk and he says, God is a monster. What would you call me if I could save a little child's life and I don't do it? You'd call me a monster. Maybe we don't go that far. But there are times we ask the question, where is God? And i got to admit, if I were in charge of the universe, I wouldn't let little children get leukemia. I wouldn't let a plane get shot down with 298 passengers. They die. I wouldn't let children get gunned down in a Connecticut school, would you? But then came Joseph's probably most severe test. Promotion and prosperity. It just so happened that one day Pharaoh had two strange dreams. Seven skinny cows eat up seven fat cows. Seven withered heads of grain consume seven plump heads. Weird dreams, but so vivid that Pharaoh knew they had a spiritual significance. And when all of his wizards were stumped, all of a sudden the cupbearer remembered Joseph after two years. He said, oh, Pharaoh! When I was in prison, there was a sharp, young Hebrew man who interpreted a dream for me and it came true exactly. Maybe he could help you. And so Joseph was immediately summoned to have an audience with Pharaoh. You know, when people have favor with God, their life can turn around on a dime. And Joseph leaves the prison and all of a sudden he's in the palace. And he informs Pharaoh, I can't interpret dreams. But there is a God in heaven who can. 
And Pharaoh, your dreams are the same. They're going to be seven years of unprecedented prosperity followed by seven years of unprecedented famine. And if I were you, I'd appoint a gifted administrator to oversee a conservation program during the fruitful years so that you have enough stored up for the famine. And Pharaoh was immediately so impressed with this charismatic, brilliant young man that he put Joseph in charge of the oversight of the grain program. Genesis 41, beginning with verse 41, says, So Joseph, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That's like having an unlimited expense account. He could stamp anything with Pharaoh's signature. And he dressed him in robes of fine linen. He'd lost two coats, and now he takes off the prison garb and puts on royal garments. Put a gold chain around his neck. Had him ride in a chariot as second in command. And men shouted before him, make way. And he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He's got a kind of a motorcycle escort everywhere he goes. He's the number two man in Egypt. And this may be his most severe test. The British essayist Thomas Carlyle once said, For every person who can withstand prosperity, I'll find you a hundred who can withstand adversity. And that's true. You've seen people who, when they were barely getting by, always were in church, faithful to their family. But then something happened and they made it big financially. And all of a sudden they were gone on the weekends, running with the wrong crowd. And pretty soon their spiritual life fall apart. J. Oswald Sanders in his book on spiritual leadership wrote, Not every man can carry a full cup, but Joseph did. He handled the promotion well because God had been forging him in that miry pit, in the slave quarters, in the prison for just this time. And you go on to read in Genesis, he's a fair-minded administrator. The people of Egypt said, you saved our lives. He's a God-honoring father as he trains his boys to know the Lord. And then he forgave his brothers. There was that time when all ten of his brothers came to Egypt to buy food. And they knelt down in front of Joseph. They didn't recognize Joseph. You know why? A lot of changes take place between 17 and 40. Plus, Joseph looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. And they didn't recognize him. But Joseph had them right where he wanted them. He could punish them for all these years of agony he'd gone through. But he forgave them. And he said, you go get my father and family. You come live here. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph, living in fame and prosperity and godliness in Egypt for almost a hundred years, is a testimony that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. Well, we're coming to the place my time's about up. But i got two lessons I want you to take home with you today. The first one is this. Suffering is inevitable, but misery is optional. You'll have some people tell you, some preachers, If you just put your faith in God, you'll always be prosperous and you'll never get sick. Not true. Suffering's inevitable. The Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in the world you're going to to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The test is, when life falls apart for you, you, when you suffer, can you, like Joseph, 
Keep a good attitude and be positive. I read a book a while back called Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work. Remember those chicken soup books? This is written by Jack Canfield. And he told about a restaurant owner named Jerry who was the most positive, upbeat Christian he'd ever met. Joyful all the time. Said you go into his restaurant and say, Jerry, how you doing? He always had the same answer. Doing great. Any better I'd be twins. Doing wonderful. Any better I'd be twins. One day he took him aside. Hey, hey, Jerry. He said, you're the most joyful Christian I've ever known. What's your secret? He said, it's easy. I just choose every day to be joyful. No, he said, it's got to be deeper than that. What is it? No, he said, every morning when I wake up, I say to myself before I get out of bed, this is the day the Lord has made, and I can be miserable and drag everybody else down and ruin this day, or I can rejoice and be glad, and I just choose today to rejoice and be glad regardless of the circumstances. Well, one day Jerry's restaurant got broken into, and the thief panicked at the end and shot and nearly killed Jerry. And Jerry said, there I was, lying on the floor in a pool of my own blood, and I felt my life ebbing out from me. And I thought to myself, I can choose to live or I can choose to die. I choose to live. When the EMS workers came, I could tell by their comments they didn't think I I would make it. But I was still conscious when I got to the emergency room. But I could tell by the expression on the faces of the doctors and the nurses they didn't think I was going to live either. But he said a big, burly nurse bent over me and she said, Are you allergic to anything? And with a raspy voice, I said, yes. And at that, everybody stopped to listen to what it was. She said, what are you allergic to? I said, bullets. <laughs> and he said, with that, everybody burst out laughing. And I got their attention. She said, is there anything else? I said, yes, I choose to live, not to die. Please operate on me as though I'm going to live. And we said, the energy level in the room picked up. And Canfield writes, I think, six weeks later, he saw Jerry in the restaurant and said, Jerry, how you doing? said, doing great. Any better be twins. I believe that. You can choose to be joyful today regardless of circumstances or you can make yourself miserable because you say, life isn't exactly perfect for me right now. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let me tell you a little clue. Nobody likes to be around a whiner. We never say after church, let's go over to Bill's house. I just want to hear him gripe some more, don't you? No, we're attracted to people who are upbeat and positive. And that was Joseph. Suffering was inevitable, but misery was optional. And here's the final lesson I want you to take home. Divine answers are rare. God just asks you to trust and to wait. Joseph didn't have any answers. He didn't know why he was in prison. He didn't know how long he's going to be there. There's no Gideon Bible in the corner. He said, oh, pick up here. Look at the last part of Genesis. I get released and he's going to be served Pharaoh. No, as far as he knew, he's going to be in prison all his life. But he served even though there were no answers. He trusted and he waited. You look through the book of Job, a book about suffering. And Job demanded an audience with God. I want to know why I'm suffering when I don't deserve it. And God finally said, look, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you explain how a hawk can fly? Can you explain, Job, how a baby can be formed in the womb? God didn't give Job answers. He just said, look, it's too complex. You can't fully understand it. Just hold on. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. J. Vernon McGee once said, God designed and directs this universe. We're here at His disposal. He owes us nothing. And then he added, frankly, if you don't like the way God's running things, go off and start your own universe. (laughs) Well, that's a little harsh. But that's the truth. 
We're here at His disposal. And when going gets tough, we just got to trust and we got to wait. The Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as an eagle and fly. They shall walk and not faint. And there are times, folks, when life is tough. That's all you can do is walk and not faint. But if you wait and you trust God's goodness, one day there'll come a time when you'll mount up with wings as an eagle and fly. My successor at Southeast Christian Church, Dave Stone, says that when he was six years old, he heard and saw his mother crying. He said, Mom, what's wrong? She said, I just learned that your Uncle Greg will never be able to walk. Uncle Greg had been born with muscular dystrophy. And she said, the doctor said he'll never be able to walk. And Dave said, never, Mom? And she said, no, never. And Dave said, not even in heaven? And his mother smiled and said, well, he'll walk in heaven. And Dave said, well, we'll just wait then. And they waited for 40 years. And today, Greg's walking and dancing in heaven. Sometimes you have no explanation. You can't understand how God is at work in your life. But He asks you to trust His goodness that He will work things together for good and wait and you'll mount up the wings as an eagle and fly. How do you explain to a 14-year-old boy that his dad, the preacher, has drowned? I didn't understand it. But over the last 40-some years, that little church of 150 people in Conneautville, Pennsylvania, has sent out 40-some kids into Bible college and ministry. And among those who went was Greg Comp, my home preacher's son. And he went back to his home church to be their preacher. And he has such a sensitive heart for people who hurt because he knows that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And that it is still true. All things work together for good to those who love God. And to those who are called according to His purpose, His purpose. Let's pray.